Who is Hartley Lachter? He is Associate Professor of Religion Studies and holds the Philip and Muriel Berman Chair in Jewish Studies and serves as Director of the Berman Center for Jewish Studies at Lehigh University. His scholarship focus on, focuses on medieval Kabbalah, with a particular emphasis on the relationship between Jewish historical experiences and the development of Kabbalistic discourses. His work explores how medieval Jewish Christian debates, as well as disruptive moments of violence and forced conversion, shape Jewish mystical literature and serve as a form of cultural resistance for some pre-modern Jews. There's a lot more, more on here. I'm just not going to do it because I'm tired tonight, as I mentioned. But it's in the brochure, and it's very important, so you should definitely read it. Because by the end, remember, I test you just randomly if I see you in the hallways. And I, I expect you to know a lot about Hartley and our one-month scholar. Hartley is available for dinners. He's available for lunches. He's available if you want to take him to the theater. He's your scholar. In fact, he has done things that no other scholar has done. He, took, he stayed at my house over our house over Shabbat when we were in Detroit, and he took in the garbage for us. He fed our frogs. He is now staying at a home in Newport Beach where he's house-sitting and he's taking care of the dogs there. So if you guys have laundry, if you have cleaning, <laughs> or if you want to entertain, I urge you to spend time. He is your scholar. So with that, Hartley, the lectern is yours. And thank you guys. And Chag Sameach again. Uh, thank you very much, Ari. Um, first of all, this is the first uh, event where Ari's been present, and so I want to take a moment to thank him for putting this together. Um, I think it's a wonderful and dynamic program that you've had over the years, and um, clearly Ari is a very organized person. Um, <laughs> even though he does have pet frogs, and it was the first time I've ever been asked to take care of anyone's pet frogs while, while they were away, but um, they were still alive. Right, they're still, they're still alive, so clearly my frog sitting skills I can now add to, uh, add to add to the list of things that I can hold as a core confidence. So. Um, but also I want to thank everyone here in the uh, Irvine and Orange County area who has extended your hospitality to me. I really appreciate it and have enjoyed spending time so far with this really warm community um, as part of this, uh, this terrific program. So tonight's talk is going to be the first of three where we'll focus on questions of messianism. And tonight, in particular, I want to think about messianic ideas in formative Jewish texts. A little bit in the Bible, but thinking specifically about rabbinic literature. In the next two, we're going to consider messianic movements. And there we'll look at moments where ideas about messianic redemption burst forth into social movements that so far haven't resulted in an actual messianic redemption. Um, one of my teachers in college actually put it nicely, I think, when he said that the one thing we can say about the history of Jewish messiahs is that none of them have been the actual messiah yet. And so every time we look at the history of messiahs, people sometimes call this you know, studying false messiahs in Jewish history. And he said, well, what other kinds of messiahs are there? there? I mean, all of these movements are movements that have led to some kind of disappointment. And in some cases, they have led to catastrophic failures and disruptions in Jewish communities. In some cases, really changing the course of Jewish history not through their success, but actually through the disappointment that they bring in their wake. And so I want to look first at messianic ideas, and then think about how those ideas become actualized in movements 
what are some of the constructive forces at play in those movements, and what are some of the destructive forces at play? Because both in the ideas and in the movements, we find a combination of constructive and destructive. So for tonight, I want to think about the biblical precedence of messianism a little bit, and then think about rabbinic literature, the Mishnah, the Gemara, and Midrash, the primary texts that comprise rabbinic literature, the Mishnah and Gemara together comprise the Talmud, and these texts are very important for how Jewish messianism in later periods and how Jewish messianic movements are able to take shape. Now, one of the most prominent features of rabbinic discourse is that, frankly, it's a bit of a mess. And that's actually a very good thing in the history of Judaism, in the sense that all kinds of ideas and contradictory opinions are recorded in rabbinic literature. We don't find an attempt to just sort of crystallize one clear opinion and then report only that. Rabbinic literature, of course, finds a way to accord space to the opinions of many different rabbis. And you hear Rabbi so-and-so holds the following opinion, and Rabbi such-and-such holds this opinion, and all of them are held together in a kind of cacophony of rabbinic voices that serve as the basis of further Jewish reflection on any number of ideas or halachic problems, that sort of thing. And in the case of the Messiah, we find this messiness, this untidiness to be particularly pronounced. And perhaps for good reason, in that rabbis in the Talmud were much more interested in matters of halakha. They were much more interested in talking about kashrut, shabbat, um, civil law, or just business dealings. They were very interested in the rules governing charity, family law, these sorts of things. They were much less systematic when it comes to questions of doctrine and belief. And as a result, um, all kinds of opinions about these matters are thrown in, sometimes haphazardly and randomly, in some cases in places where you wouldn't even expect to find them. And these views just sort of hang out there and are not systematized. So one thing that's very clear is rabbinic literature was not interested in a systematic theology. And so this is also the case with ideas about messianism. They don't try to crystallize a clear systematic idea about the Messiah. There are many, many different ideas that are competing with one another in rabbinic literature. But because the rabbis were very interested in this worldly matters, matters of society, matters of law, it seems that even their discussions of messianism are actually focused on questions of relationship. The relationship between Jews and God was much more interesting to them because it relates to how a society functions as opposed to the actual bringing to an end of that society in a messianic redemption. Rabbinic literature tended to be much more focused on life of Jews in exile. Whereas the question of what happens after exile was a more academic kind of consideration and not part of the core of what rabbis had as their job. So now, where do these ideas then come from? How do they start thinking about the Messiah, the Redeemer? So the word Messiah in Hebrew, Moshiach, refers to the anointed one. This person is the uh, 
the redeemer who has come, comes to redeem the people of Israel from their exile. And there are two major trends of messianic thinking that we find in both biblical and rabbinic literature. One is the restorative, and the other is the utopian or apocalyptic. So the restorative vision basically says that the Messiah will bring the people of Israel back to a period of time or a state that's like a period of time in the Jewish history when things were good. They will restore the temple and it will solve the question of exile by bringing the Israelites back to the land of Israel and back to a time in their experience when things were good. Whereas the apocalyptic or utopian vision of the messianic redemption imagines all kinds of cataclysmic events, catastrophes that happen at the time of the Messiah and that this will then usher in a completely new era, not just for the Jewish people, but for humanity as a whole. And that the time of the Messiah will be one that is supernaturally different from this world and that this period will be a kind of perfection of the world. But that perfection will only be attainable after a process of destruction. So these two trends, these two sort of ways of imagining the Messiah, the, the restorative and the utopian, we find both of them somewhat competing with one another, both in biblical literature and in rabbinic literature. So in the biblical view, the notion of the anointed king is someone who's promised, especially in the later writings of the prophets, as someone who will restore the kingdom of Israel, the king of Israel, in particular, the kingdom of David. Um, the promise made to David that the, the kingship will not depart from his descendants is understood as a promise that will be reflected in this future restoration of the people of Israel, that King David's descendants will continue to be the king of Israel. This will also involve the rebuilding of the temple. Um, the reviving of the dead, in some cases, is described. And the conversion of Gentiles, or at very least, Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and praise God. So this is a restorative vision, because with some elements added in, it restores a kind of perfection of Israeli Israelite history that has already been experienced in some form and to which the people long to return. But the utopian and apocalyptic elements are also present in some forms of biblical descriptions of redemption. And these include descriptions of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is associated with redemption. It's associated with messianic restoration. But in those texts, there are catastrophic wars that precede the full culmination of messianic redemption. And this brings in a new era in human history, a perfection of society where new things happen that have never happened before. So the image of the wolf lying down with the lamb. Um, what's the joke when the wolf lies down with the lamb? The lamb doesn't sleep very well. <laughs> the, the, this notion of enemies becoming friends um, in Isaiah 11:6, that kind of perfection of all the world and perfection of humanity happens at the end of a catastrophic process of conflict. In post-biblical literature, 
This is sometimes described as battles that happen at um, uh, Har Megiddo or Armageddon, that there are battles between the enemies of Israel and the, the, messianic, um, the, the messianic armies of Israel. In some cases, there's the notion of the Messiah ben Joseph and the Messiah ben David. So the Messiah son of Joseph is actually a military leader who comes, fights battles, and dies in the, the process of winning the wars against the enemies of Israel. And then the Messiah, son of David, is the one who comes and ushers in the final moment of redemption. And one of the first things he does is revive the Messiah, son of Joseph, from the dead. Then the full period of the, the resurrection of all of the Israelites and the reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem happens after that. Sometimes these battles include descriptions of the armies of Gog and Magog fighting in this final moment of battle. Um, there's also, in some of the later rabbinic texts, a description of a new era that involves the sort of having it begin with a messianic banquet. And this banquet involves feasting on the flesh of certain creatures that are described in the Bible. So there's the sea creature, the Leviathan, described in the book of Isaiah that's said to be one of the dishes um, that is served at the Messianic banquet. There's also the behemoth, which is a beast, a land beast mentioned in Psalms. And it even says that for people who don't wish to have um, fish or meat, there is a foul option. So you get, three, <laughs> it's like a menu and you get three options. So if you prefer foul, um, there's the, uh, the tzitz shaddai, um, a bird mentioned in Psalms that they say is this very, very large and apparently incredibly delicious and succulent bird that is then served at the Messianic banquet, along with special Messianic wine, this wine that, the wine that has been guarded since the six days of creation, held within its grapes that is then squeezed for the Israelites who are able to be present for this special meal at the beginning of the Messianic era. There's even the notion of special fragrances that waft in from paradise and um, perfume this banquet for all who are present. And those present include not just the Israelites and, their, and, and the, the resurrected uh, Israelites and Jews who come to partake in the banquet, but God himself comes to this banquet. So this is not a return to a previous state. This is a revolution. This is a complete change, not just in Jewish history. It's not simply a return to a moment past in Jewish history. This is the idea of progress forward towards a new moment, not just in Jewish history, but in human history. In fact, for the whole notion of existence itself, it enters a new era. So this more utopian or apocalyptic vision has much more of a notion of change, of fundamental change, at role in it. So now these different traditions from the Bible are mixed together in Talmudic discourse, which leads to a lot of disagreement and conflict in subsequent moments in Jewish history as to how to know what the Messiah is. A lot of disagreement about what would then be entailed in a messianic movement, what one would expect from a messiah. There's been a tremendous amount 
of disagreement, of course, between Jews and Christians on this matter, and between Jews themselves in terms of what the Messiah is. And part of the reason for that is that the tradition in biblical and rabbinic texts is remarkably diverse. Also, in rabbinic texts, the question of the Messiah is a fairly charged question, in that for the Mishnah and then for the Gemara, there were two different conflicts that informed how they thought about the Messiah. Um, of course, in the years 66 to 74 CE, in the middle of which the, um, the Second Temple was destroyed, there was a major revolt that was devastating in the history of Judaism. This was a very, very serious conflict that led to serious consequences. And so in the time of the Mishnah, the Messianic redemption is not a very prominent and important feature of how they think about Judaism. They think about it much more in terms of law and trying to encourage a stable society. So when the Mishnah is compiled in the end of the first century, beginning of the second, this is a period when the focus in rabbinic circles was much more on creating a stable and less volatile Jewish community. And messianic ideas were, it seems, not only less interesting to them, but that they were reluctant to engage with many of the messianic, much of the messianic discourse that had come down to them because this was potentially very dangerous. And they had good reason to think that messianic pretensions can lead to all kinds of very counterproductive military conflicts in which Jews stood to gain very little. After that, in 132 to 135, was the famous Bar Kokhba revolt. Now, I'm sure some of you, especially if you've been on trips to Israel and they talk about Rabbi Akiva, you know who Bar Kokhba is, right? Who's Bar Kokhba? Yes? Right, and so that, that was um, in 132 to 135, destruction of Jerusalem and the devastation of Judean communities more broadly. Yes? But he also established for a brief period of time an independent state, right? Yeah, it was, it was looking pretty good. They had the coins, right? You've seen the Bar Kokhba coins in the Israel Museum. And, and we shouldn't underestimate how massive this Judean revolt against Roman rule was. One fifth of the Roman legion, I mean, one-fifth of the Roman army was killed in the Bar Kokhba revolt. This was a massive, massive war in which the Russian army had many, many, I mean, the, did I say Russian? <laughs> in which the Roman army, I really don't know what that means. My family at one point was from Russia. Uh, the Roman army, um, they, they, they lost huge numbers of soldiers in this, in this conflict, and they, they actually lost certain battles such that there was a kind of independent Judea before reinforcements arrived, and the Judeans were simply devastated. And this devastating loss had important implications for how rabbis thought about the Messiah, because no less an authority than Rabbi Akiva himself believed that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And others say he's not Bar Kokhba, son of the, the, the star, is Bar Kosiba, the son of the lie. 
So there was this dispute about whether or not he was, he was the Messiah. But Akiva believed that he was, even though others told him he that was not. Some said, Akiva, grass will grow from your cheeks before the Messiah comes, meaning Akiva will be dead and in the ground. The Messiah is not coming yet. And of course, it turned out when Bar Kokhba was defeated and died, that that meant he was not the Messiah. Akiva acknowledged that this was wrong, and it turned out to have very, very negative consequences for Jewish society. Was there, I'm sorry, was there a follow-up question to that in the back that I missed? No? There are later traditions about Bar Kokhba, and we don't really know very much from any kind of first-hand evidence about his personality. But there does seem to be good reason to think that at least the rabbinic tradition is very clear that important rabbis like Akiva believed he was the Messiah and had to amend their views afterwards. And in thinking about that in subsequent generations, for rabbis, for, for Talmudic rabbis, they had to ask themselves the question, what are what's really at stake in identifying someone as the Messiah. And getting it wrong can be incredibly, incredibly devastating for Jewish communities. I mean, the destruction of Judea, not only was, was Judea destroyed, not only was this uh, a complete destruction of their way of life and killing millions of people, they were, in fact, banished from all of Judea. They couldn't even visit the, the ruins of Jerusalem. And so they were left to figure out how to create a viable form of Judaism in the wake of this kind of destruction. And it's in that moment that we start to see the development of what eventually becomes the, the recording of the Mishnah, the oral law, which isn't supposed to be written down. And then, of course, the, the Gemara afterwards, first one in, in the Jerusalem Talmud and then the, the, uh, the Babylonian. Um, this is a, 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 the rabbinic movement is in many ways a movement of exile, and it's a movement of exile acutely conscious of the problems of messianic dreams gone awry. And it's in the context of that that we find discussions of the, of, of the Messiah in the Talmud. So of course there are two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And in the Jerusalem Talmud we find um, comparatively more restorative model of the Messiah. They say that the Messiah will return the, king of the, the dynasty of King David to his throne as expected. The dead will be revived. Um, they also say that the Messiah was born on the day of the destruction of the second temple. It seems to be part of a tradition that in every generation there's always someone who could be the Messiah if the generation is worthy and if it's the time arrives for the Messiah to come, that the Messiah is always there and present. They even give some names of who is the Messiah. Menachem is one. David, a likely choice, is another. There are various seven or eight names, different traditions. Uh, another is Tzemach, which means um, a, a sort of shoot, like shoot from a young plant that's emerging. Uh, so these are some of the names given for the Messiah. They say that repentance brings the Messiah. Uh, or at least prevents delay of the Messiah. So the notion of repentance, tshuva, bringing the Messiah, and observance of the mitzvot, bringing the Messiah, or at least helping to usher in the moment when the Messiah will be able to appear. Uh, this is an important part of how the Talmud, especially the Jerusalem Talmud, describes the Messiah. 
And they say, importantly, that one may not try to calculate the day of the, the arrival of the Messiah, that it is a mystery. And this is interesting because this appears to be a Talmudic rule that was very often ignored. And many, many important authorities throughout history, and we'll see some of this in, in subsequent uh, discussions of this, many important authorities, including Maimonides, have been willing to venture a little bit or a lot down the road of calculating the date of the arrival of the Messiah. Um, in fact, sometimes you can even date texts based on when they calculate the arrival of the Messiah because you know if a text, especially if it's an anonymous manuscript, says that the Messiah is coming in 1423, that probably that text was written before 1423. Uh, so lots of people do, in fact, try to calculate the coming of the Messiah. But the Talmud says one should not do this, which of course is another way of trying to mute the force of messianic calculation. Essentially it's saying focus on the law, repent from doing evil things, and the Messiah will come when God decides. It's much more of a quietistic version of messianic thinking, essentially trying to um, reduce the potentially historically devastating consequences of a messianic movement. Now, this restorative model is much more complicated in the Babylonian Talmud, where we find a combination of restorative as well as somewhat utopian elements. So there is, of course, the prohibition um, against calculating the end, but there's a lot of conversation nonetheless about what the Messiah and Messianic times will be like. So in one tradition in the Babylonian time, Talmud, Elijah will come to announce the arrival of the Messiah. So Elijah plays this special role along with the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah son of David, as well as the Messiah son of Joseph. And of course we all know the tradition that has resulted from this notion that Elijah announces the arrival of the Messiah. Right? Everyone knows this is the tradition when, on Passover, right, we open the door, the cat runs out, and we, we, we uh, sing Eliyahu Hanavi. And this, this relates to a, a, a medieval tradition of hoping for the redemption of the Messiah, opening the door, really urging the arrival of the Messiah, having a place set for the Messiah to, to go to all the satyrs in the world and drink a lot of Manashevitz. This tradition has its roots in, in, in this idea. But there are a lot of different, and, and as I pointed out, competing visions of the Messiah in the Babylonian Talmud. So I want to go through just, just a few of them. And I'll try to move through this quickly enough that we can then think about what are some of the implications of messianic redemption. I want to be able to take some questions, and I want to be sure that Ari can get home in time to go to sleep since he's very jet-lagged, uh, and we, we don't want him to lose his beauty sleep. So Rabbi Hanina says, the son of David will not come until a fish is sought for an invalid and cannot be procured. So this comment essentially implies that the Messiah will come only when things have gotten terrible, so much so that people are starving, such that even a very ill person cannot be fed. So this is much more of an apocalyptic kind of image. Um, Rabbi uh, Hama ben Hanina then also says, the son of David, will not come until even the pettiest kingdom ceases to have power over Israel. This is another vision of the Messiah that's had important ramifications historically, which is the notion that the Messiah 
instead of coming to um, break the bonds of political subjugation for the Jewish people, the Messiah will instead actually come once those bonds have already been broken. So it's sort of the culmination of a process of the emergence of uh, Jews from under the, the, the rulership of others. So this is a more largely political description of the function of the Messiah. Um, Ze'eri said in Rabbi Hanina's name, the son of David will not come until there are no conceited men in Israel. It's hard to know if this is apocalyptic or merely wishful thinking, but this is an idea that we find uh, in several places in the Talmud, that the Messiah will come when people reach a level of moral perfection. And I would suggest that that kind of thinking about the Messiah, again, is trying to attenuate the possibility of a catastrophic messianic movement. Instead, it says to people, if you want the Messiah to come, repent. If you want the Messiah to come, don't be so conceited. And that kind of thinking moves people away from looking around for who is the Messiah and then engaging in military action that could be counterproductive or even hopeless. And I, I sort of dwell upon that question, both because the rabbis were um, conscious of that after the Bar Kokhba revolt, and because in the history of Jewish messianism, when we look at messianic movements, um, there have been quite a few moments where Jewish messiahs have sought to engage in very unsuccessful military ventures based on the notion that they were going to be helped by God and it worked out not to be the case, and many people died. And I think the rabbis were conscious of how problematic that can be. So now, there's another tradition that's attributed to Rabbi Ula when he says, Jerusalem will be redeemed only by righteousness. This, I think, is another articulation of this same idea, that when the Messiah comes, it will be the result of Jews performing Jewish law and repenting of um, either their, their bad qualities or their evil deeds. That this will have something to do with the moral perfection that Jews engage in with themselves rather than a political resistance or a military resistance to the forces around them. Now, in another very sort of, um, I think, creative description of the coming of the Messiah that's described in the Talmud, um, there's a, a, a story told of Rabbi Joshua ben Levi. And it says that Rabbi Joshua ben Levi met Elijah standing by the entrance of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai's tomb. So they're there uh, in Meron, perhaps. Um, and he sees Elijah, and it says he asked him, when will the Messiah come? And Elijah says, go and ask him yourself. Where is he sitting? At the entrance of the gates of Rome, Elijah says. It actually just says at the entrance, but the traditional interpretation has been that this means at the entrance of the gates of Rome. Rabbi Levi asked him, and by what sign may I recognize him? He is sitting among the poor lepers. All of the others untie the bandages all at once and rebandage them together, whereas he unties and rebandages each separately before treating the next, thinking, should I be needed, I must not be delayed. So he went to him and greeted him, saying, peace upon thee, O master and teacher. Peace upon thee, O son of Levi, Elijah replied. When will you come, master? Rabbi Joshua asked. Today was Elijah's answer. 
So in this first part of the tale, we learn a couple of interesting things about this particular passage's attitudes towards the Messiah. One is that the Messiah is very focused on taking care of human beings. And in fact, in this case, the least among the, the, the sort of the, the least worthy, the, the least important um, among the people of Rome, the lepers who sit at the gates. And he does this unusual thing that he's there helping take care of lepers, which involves changing their bandages. But the changing of the bandages of the lepers, instead of removing all the bandages and putting them all on, it says here that the Messiah does it differently. That this man, who presumably is only known to be the Messiah because you know, Elijah points it out to him, this man, the, 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 the messianic redeemer, does them one at a time, removes a bandage and puts it on, removes a bandage and puts it on, so that he's always ready in case the time comes when he needs to be called to redeem the people of Israel. Implying that if he had all of the bandages of the lepers removed and he was called away to redeem the people of Israel, he wouldn't go, not yet. First, he would tie bandages onto lepers. That comment, I think, says quite a bit about how at least this passage in the Babylonian Talmud understands the Messiah. What's the example here of the Messiah? What's his moral vision? It's about helping people, implying that if Jews want to usher in the Messianic era, they should treat lepers. They should reach out in kindness to other human beings. This seems to be Again, I think a very anti-utopian, anti-apocalyptic, messianic image. It's almost as though the text is saying, you want the Messiah? Go do good for someone. And in fact, the text goes on um, to sort of tell us the end of the story. It says, when Rabbi Joshua ben Levi returned, Elijah asked him, what did he say to you? Peace be upon thee, O son of Levi, he answered. Elijah observed, this means that both you and your father are assured a portion in the world to come. He spoke false to me, falsely to me, Rabbi Joshua rejoined. He said that he would come today, but he hasn't come. Elijah answered him, this is what he said to you. It is written today if you will hear his voice. Psalms 95, 7. Implying that the Messiah would come, he would come now if only you would hear his voice, meaning that he should be out treating lepers. Somehow he hasn't truly heard the messianic vision the, or the Messiah's message to him, and this is what is delaying him. That somehow what causes a delay in the ushering in of the messianic era is a shortcoming of the Jewish people. And that, that vision in the, in, of the Messiah in the Talmud creates a different idea of what redemption looks like. Here, redemption looks like a change in human behavior first and foremost, not a catastrophic or utopian shift in the nature of the world. And I think that's one of these very sort of more cautious statements from the Talmud that clearly is trying to move people away from messianic movements. But it's not the only kind of statement that we see in, the, in the, the Babylonian Talmud. There are other statements that imply they do think that the Messiah will come as the culmination of a catastrophic or apocalyptic 
kind of movement. So much so that several rabbis say, as Rabbi Ula said, let him come, meaning the Messiah, but let me not see him. And it says, Rabbah said likewise, let him come, but let me not see him. And so too with Rabbi Yochanan, let him come and let me not see him. So we have several rabbis who say, the Messiah, great, let him come, but maybe after my days, maybe not, not during my lifetime, implying they felt that the Messiah would come only after a process of very, very difficult moments, what's sometimes called the birth pangs of the Messiah or the footsteps of the Messiah. There's another tradition, a sort of shocking tradition, that's attributed to Rabbi Hillel, who says, there will be no Messiah for Israel because they have already enjoyed him in the days of Hezekiah. So no less an authority than Rabbi Hillel said there is no Messiah for the Jewish people. They've already had their messianic moment. Now, he, this wasn't an uncontested view. Rabbi Joseph says, may God forbid, forgive him for saying so. He says, when did Hezekiah flourish during the first temple? And yet Zechariah was prophesying in the second days of the second temple. And he said, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Before, behold, your king comes to you. He is just in having salvation lowly riding upon an ass and upon the colt of an ass. So this is the idea of the Messiah comes riding a donkey into Jerusalem. So Rabbi Joseph really disagrees here with Rabbi Hillel, but Rabbi Hillel's view is maintained and preserved in the Babylonian Talmud. So there's a whole range of views here, um, a kind of deep disagreement about the nature of the Messiah, and in this particular case, about even the existence of the Messiah as an awaited and hoped for element of Jewish history. Now, Hillel is um, admittedly a very unusual voice, but an important one that is recorded. Another view that's attributed to Rabbi Samuel says this world differs from the days of the Messiah only in one respect, and that is servitude to foreign powers. This became important for people like Maimonides in the Middle Ages, who said the big difference between this world and the, the days of the Messiah is really just about Israelite independence. And that if Jewish people could achieve political independence in the land of Israel, that's the days of the Messiah. It's a kind of Ben-Gurion image of the Messiah, that this is what the Messiah looks like, is about coming out from under the oppression of foreign powers. And all of the supernatural elements are actually completely removed from that image of the Messiah. There's no banquet with the Leviathan. There's no catastrophic wars that usher in the messianic moment. This is simply a political movement. Now, um, Shabbat 118b is a place where it makes this famous statement. Um, I know I learned this when I was in Hebrew school. I think a lot of people hear this, that if every Jew in the world kept the Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah would come, which again is one of these statements about the sort of focus on Jewish laws and Jewish traditions as a way of achieving the Messiah. But this combination of views, I think, reflects a lot of ambivalence in the rabbinic tradition itself about the Messiah. The idea is clearly important to them. They don't want to abandon it except for Rabbi Hillel. But they're not entirely sure what to do with it, and there are many, many views about what the Messiah will be like. And I think that that tension is revealed in a story that really takes shape a little bit after the time of the Talmud, 
but is, a, is an amazing story from the early Middle Ages that reflects something important about messianism in rabbinic texts. It's a story about the famous river Sambation. It's described uh, in, in the Bible that the ten lost tribes are gone somewhere further east, and there was a tradition that they were gone very far east, uh, according to the Talmud, beyond this river, the river Sambation. And uh, that some even said it's called the river Sambation because it rests on the Sabbath. And so it flows six days a week and it, it takes Shabbat off. Um, Genesis Rabbah says that that's where the, the ten lost tribes have been and they'll stay there until they come to fight the final wars to bring about the redemption of the Jewish people. Now, early Christian and Muslim writers also pick up this idea of the river Sambachon and begin to describe it as a river that flows so quickly it throws rocks into the air and it's, it's an incredibly wild, wild river that cannot be crossed except that it rests on the Sabbath. Um, it seems that this story starts to circulate. Again, we see evidence of it. Christians talk about it, Muslims talk about it, and Jews talk about it until a, a very interesting event in the, the ninth century, a man named Eldad the Danite, who was believed by some Jewish communities in North Africa and elsewhere to be actually from the tribe of Dan. He comes and describes the 10 lost tribes, and he says that they are fierce warriors, and that they, they, they are incredibly powerful and can defeat any army. But they are surrounded by the river Sambachon. And the other problem is, these warriors are very pious, and they do not travel with their implements of war on the Sabbath. And so now you can see the problem. The Sambachion, according to, at this point in the story, they actually use something we first see witnessed in a Muslim text. The Sambachion has no water at all. It's merely sand that flows with boulders. And, and they say that it, it's such a strong river, even a mountain of iron could not possibly withstand it. And this river is flowing, it's, it's impossible to cross, except on the Sabbath it stops and is dry land. Turning it into a dry river is perfect because on the Sabbath you could walk right across it. And what holds them back is, the, is their observance of halacha itself. There's something about the halachic rabbinic tradition here that's represented as its own cause of the inability to actualize this particular form of apocalyptic messianic redemption. It's like saying, yes, the great armies of the heroes of Israel are there, but they can't come because they, they can't cross that river except on Shabbos. It's a way of showing, I think, the ambivalence in a kind of interesting literary way, the ambivalence that's encoded into rabbinic texts themselves, where they, they, they certainly embrace the notion of aspiring for some kind of redemption, but they're not sure what they want to call that redemption and they're suspicious of the more apocalyptic versions of that redemption. And that the halachic system itself is much more a system of stability rather than a system of cataclysmic change. What we'll see as we look at messianic movements is that there are moments that issue forth into a kind of cataclysmic change. And that those are movements that challenge the rabbinic system. So if we think about the purpose of messianic ideas, what purpose does it serve in Jewish life? 
And Raphael Patai, who is a, a very famous scholar of Jewish messianism, was convinced that the hope for messianic redemption was essential to Jewish survival. And perhaps I wonder if the answer isn't maybe a little bit more ironic in that Jewish survival over the last 2,000 years has drawn from a kind of creative tension between the constructive and the destructive forces of messianic hope. Or maybe a, a way of thinking of that differently is to say that Jewish history has been propelled by the conflicting desires articulated by the rabbis in the Talmud, namely dreaming of messianic restoration on the one hand, and even the apocalyptic creation of a new and perfected world, and at the same time, hoping not to be around when that change happens. Thank you. So I think we have time for questions, yes. Sure. Okay. The first question is, um, <clears throat> what impact do you feel that the um, messianic um, interpretations in the early Talmud had on the development of the separation between Christianity and Judaism? So this is this is a, a great question. What impact the the speculations about messianism in the Talmud had on the separation of Judaism and Christianity? Clearly, early Christianity is drawing on ideas about the Messiah in Judean society. So now, this, it's, it's early, it's a little before the, the establishment of the Mishnah, but it's clear that the notion of um, a Messiah who, who comes is perhaps unrecognized and um, has something to do with resurrection. In the case of the stories told in the Gospels, it's only the resurrection of Jesus himself, not of all of the dead of Judea. Um, but you can see that it's a, a version of a Judean story. And that what ends up being collected in uh, the Talmud has other things going on as well. But the, the movement around Jesus is, is clearly a Judean messianic movement of one sort. Um, but it's one that understands and justifies that messianic movement as still having been legitimate even after the death of their Messiah because there was this resurrection and even after the destruction of the temple and the loss of Jerusalem to the Romans rather than kind of what happens in the Bar Kokhba moment where Akiva says, well, my mistake, that's not the Messiah that what we see in the, uh, the gospel version is a justification of that particular messianic movement but it, it's a messianic movement that, that is thoroughly Judean and, and clearly draws on some of the same elements of, as what we find recorded later in rabbinic literature, but does it with a, a very different vision in mind of what messianic redemption is supposed to look like. The post-Jesus world doesn't qualify as messianic redemption for, for any of the opinions recorded in rabbinic Judaism. Second, oh, so the second question, yeah. The second question is, um, what, um, maybe I'm skipping ahead kind of but, um, in your lectures, but what, uh, if, how would you relate the messianic vision, the messianic descriptions in the Talmud to the Kabbalistic notion of Tikkun Olam and, uh, and what happens you know, the breaking of the vessels and so forth, and putting them back together, you know, 
What function, if any, does the Messiah have in that? So is it okay if I make a gross generalization? Sure. Here's a, a massive generalization. My generalization would be Kabbalists, for the most part, and there are some remarkable exceptions to this, but for the most part, Kabbalists don't embrace the notion of a geopolitical messianic redeemer who comes and leads all of the Jews back to the land of Israel. They have a much more spiritualized notion of messianic redemption that takes place on the level of the mysteries of the divine, has to do with the render, the rend, uh, sort of correcting of the, the, the areas of the spirit that have been torn apart. It has to do with the restoration of the divine figure, if we're talking about um, Lurianic mysticism, which you mentioned, the, the sort of lifting of the sparks to reassemble the divine perfection. That notion of redemption for the Kabbalists tends not to be very messianic in the traditional sense. They sort of move messianism into this spiritual realm. They also talk about the individual redemption of the soul, and they put a lot less energy into the notion of a kind of messiah who causes changes in the political realm or in the sort of physical realm. Yes? So, in between your Kabbalistic um, approach and the rabbinical approach of the Talmud and the Gomorrah, where does the notion in Reform Judaism of it just being Are you saying, so in between? Well, you know, I think Reformed Jews often hear that they don't believe in a person or a messianic time or a catastrophe, but rather an era of goodwill. The whole world will have, I, I, I don't know how many other Reformed Jews are here, but I remember hearing this many times in many synagogues. So where does that notion come from? And generated by human actions that, that create the, the just society they desire to see. Um, so there's there's the description of the notion of the Yomot HaMashiach, the days of the Mashiach, and how this relates to the Olam Haba, the world to come. In the Talmud, these become sort of combined in some cases, these two. The world to come is the days of the Messiah. In others, the days of the Messiah last for any period between, one opinion is seven years, and another opinion is that it's thousands of years. Uh, and that at the end of that, there will be the world to come, which is what happens when the entire universe sort of ceases to exist. Um, and that that can be brought about through human righteousness. That can be brought about um, by people choosing to, um, to do good, to do right. And they, they can create that. They don't remove the Messiah from it in Talmudic literature, but in mystical literature, they... They don't fully, I mean, they'll still talk about the Messiah, but it's clear when you look at how they do it, they're very focused on humans engaging in human action that then really changes the world. Catalysts, if you think back to the first talk, Catalysts were very, um, almost radical in the amount of power they would attribute to human actions. Human actions really influence the divine realm and therefore change and sustain the universe. And in their view, the sort of what messianic redemption looks like is brought by human actions. And so I think that there's a real affinity between that approach in general and the kind of view that, that you're describing. Yes? 
I'm intrigued by the Hillel uh, view. First of all, is this the same Hillel? Because I know there's a number of Hillels in the Talmud, older and younger, etc. Is this the same Hillel that we find famous uh, from, from his sayings? Uh, two, uh, if the Messiah came during Hezekiah's time, who was the Messiah at that time? Have we identified him, or has Hillel identified him? And three, what did he do to justify being the Messiah during Hezekiah's time? So it is the famous Rabbi Hillel, and he's saying that the Messiah is essentially um, Hezekiah, because King Hezekiah um, brings about the restoration uh, of the temple and the, the kingdom of Judah. And so that, that essentially, he says, this, that's, that's what the Messiah was. The Israelites already enjoyed that. And then since that time, through their transgressions, they caused the destruction of that period of uh, a sort of ideal state for the, for, for, for the, the, the Jewish people. And, and so they, they essentially, they've already enjoyed it. They, I think the literal term is they, they've already eaten the benefits of the Messiah. So that period has, has gone now. Um, so Hillel essentially says there is a messianic idea for, for the Jews, but it's done. They've used it up. Yes? So in essence, is Hillel saying, so uh, well, then where, where is Hillel saying the hope is for the Jews? If, if I can't look forward to the Messiah, Rabbi Hillel, what do I do, says Jacob? I think this is a, a great question, right? What, what's left is the hopeful doctrine for people suffering exile. And Hillel seemed to say, suck it up, you've already enjoyed your, your, your redemption. And the rest of the rabbis seem to say, no, they haven't. They find biblical proof texts to imply this. And I, there's something interesting there about the, the need for a messianic idea and its utility in Jewish societies. That you, it, it's, it's not possible to live in a, in a hopeless world in that respect seems to be what his fellow rabbis are saying. And Hillel seems to say, yes, it is. That moment has already come and gone. But it is a, to say the least, a minority view, um, and one that is recorded, but also kind of loudly overrided in, uh, in, in, in that particular Talmudic discussion. Yes? The need to believe in a Messiah seems to be a compulsion that runs all throughout Jewish history. And it's intriguing. Why do you think why do you think we have that compulsion? Is it just an answer for for bad times? Or is it something that's deeper? I, I think what, what, it's what's the question? Oh, so the question is there seems to be a need for a messianic idea throughout Jewish history. We, it doesn't sort of just die out. We keep seeing the messianic idea in Jewish history. And the question is, what's the need for that? Is it just um, a solution for difficult times, or does it imply something deeper? Um, I hope that we get to explore that more over the course of the next couple of classes on this subject. But yes, I think it does something important and powerful, and not always unambiguously good. There's a need for that messianic redemption, and there are certain exhilarating moments where it turns into a messianic movement. And, and can you imagine how powerful it would feel to be in a moment like, yes, the Messiah is here. And when it all unravels, it's just as powerfully devastating. But 
how elevating it could be to, and how tempting it is to take the messianic hope and turn it into an actual messianic movement is, is always there. And that's, a, that's a, certainly a historical force. People don't feel like they're suffering in isolation. Their suffering is part of a historical process that may, in their own day, culminate in redemption. But what happens when people actually try to act on that culmination, identifying a Messiah, trying to move off to the land of Israel, fighting the forces of whoever is dominant there, and establishing the third temple, what happens when that goes wrong is that many people die, and the rabbis who advocated are discredited, and Jewish communities then have a very depressing scenario of yet another failed messianic hope. Hopes that are somehow completely destroyed are worse than hopes that are not yet fulfilled. So the desire for the hope as yet unfulfilled is always there, and it's powerful. But when it turns into the disappointed hope, it's destructive. Yes? I'm confused. Um, the Talmud is a commentary on the Torah. Uh, well, you've got the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. It's all commentary on commentary, but it all goes back to the Torah. The way the Mishnah presents itself is as a separate oral tradition revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. So they really have two traditions. You have the written Torah and then the rest of the, the, the Bible. And then you have the oral Torah and that these are both authoritative and somewhat parallel revelatory you know, origins of authority in rabbinic Judaism. So it's sort of a dual Torah. Okay, is there anything in my Torah, you know, the one on Saturday morning, that <laughs> is there anything in the Torah that talks about a Messiah that they can make commentary on from? Good question. Answer is, no there isn't. So then my question is, You've got all these rabbis all through history, and I don't mean to make, I mean, they're, they're all geniuses, no question about it, but um, why do they even have a discussion of the Messiah if there's no background? So there's no Torah basis for it. There are other prophetic texts that are you know, clearly talking about the hope of a messianic redemption. But it's interesting, it's not in the Torah, and yet it's still very important to rabbinic Judaism living in the context of exile. And they're a little afraid of it too. They're drawn to it, and they also wanna to try to control it somehow because they've seen it as potentially damaging. But it's, it's true, it's not in the Torah, and yet it's still very important to them. Yes? I understand the benefit and utility of promoting a moral Maybe we ought to not follow it so we can, we can attain the 
I mean, well, it certainly is a story that reveals ambivalence. The question is, does the story of the river Sambachan, and that's a, that story takes its fullest form after the end of the Talmud, does that, isn't it kind of counterproductive for reigning in messianic hopes because it kind of implies halakha is the problem, and if Jews were less tied to it, they could take hold of redemption. The Ten Lost Tribes could cross the river Sambachan and, and defeat the enemies of Israel. And I think that it's a story that picks up on the ambivalence that's in the Talmud itself, where they recognize that the halakhic system is about stability, and messianic dreams and expectations are about radically changing the order of things as they know it. There are some traditions about messianic redemption in the Talmud that say that much of the prohibitions that we find in halakha will be suspended when the Messiah comes. There's even a tradition that chazir, the, the word for, for pay, that this will, it also comes, it sounds like a word return. And this will be returned to the Jewish people in the time of messianic redemption. The Messiah, when sort of fully brought about on the stage of history, is in some ways the end of rabbinic Judaism as we know it. And that story recognizes that the rabbinic system and the dream for full messianic redemption are at odds with one another. And it, in some ways, longs for the, the fierce warriors of the Ten Lost Tribes. And in other ways, it seems to recognize God knows what he's doing by putting them behind the river Sambachan, and knows that they have to be bound by the halachic system. Essentially, they'll only come out when there's some sort of divine decree that they should. And in the meantime, they're kept at bay. They're redeeming forces that are also, in this story, destructive forces. And that halakha is a path to Jewish stability, but one that in some ways does impede full messianic redemption, or at least that kind of messianic redemption. And I think that story just leaves that out there for people to think about, because it recognizes that as a tension for Jews. Uh, yes? So kind of a morbid uh, question here. My favorite kind. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the Messianic era, and even Maimonides, talks not about a metaphorical, but an actual raising of the dead to join at this banquet, this party, this Messianic time. Why is this theme, which seems so, I mean, especially from somebody like Maimonides you talked about, which is so counter-rational and just kind of seems so out of sorts with all of this stuff. Why is that so important? It seems to be weaved in and out of all these different traditions, especially the Messianic times, and you know, it's, it influences a lot of halakhic and Jewish behavior, you know, and how you preserve bodies and things like this. It just seems weird to me, I have to say. I, I think there's a couple of things implied in that doctrine. One, people who have died have not missed out on Messianic redemption, right? The, the, the people who have died in previous generations will get the same reward as everyone else who's alive during the generation of the Messiah. So there's that. that it's a way of saying, if the Messiah is substantially delayed, don't worry, because everyone will be rewarded in the end, just as they are in this life. So in some ways, the notion of the resurrection of the dead, it relieves somewhat the need that any given person has in their particular life to see the Messiah in their generation. If he comes later after you've died, don't worry, we'll raise you from the dead and you'll be there. You won't miss the party. So there's that. The other 
is the notion that re reward is going to take place bodily, which is also part of the halachic system, the notion that the practice of the law happens with the body. These are bodily actions that happen, and therefore that reward will also accrue not to somehow to people's pure disembodied soul, but to the, the, the ensouled body. That's the notion of personhood that we find in rabbinic Judaism following uh, what we find in, in biblical literature and Semitic literature more generally, that a person is a soul and body together, not just a soul or just a body. And so it's going to be those people who are bodies and souls together who enjoy the rewards of what they do halakhically in this world. So I think that the, the, that rabbinic message um, of the re resurrection, it's, it's there to keep people from wanting a Messiah in their day and to encourage them to perform the law because it is in the state in which they performed the law that they will be rewarded in the future for performing the law. Yes. So the, the question is, what are the implications of reward after death? Well, the concept of death and what happens after death Judaically must then be somewhat affected by the different versions of the Messianic ideas. Oh, I see. So that just the notion of the afterlife in general. Yes. So the afterlife is a sort of famously unwell thought out idea in rabbinic Judaism. They were far more interested in messianism, and even that they don't really systematize or agree with each other very much about. But the notion of the world to come in the versions where it's separate from the days of the Messiah is just a kind of general, that's what's left after the end of everything. And they were less interested in that kind of general notion of the afterlife as a domain of reward or punishment than they were in the notion of the days of the Messiah, the Yomot HaMashiach. Because in that period, with the resurrection happening, the reward looks like what they have to do to get the reward. The reward happens for revived bodies, just as people have to do things in this life in order to acquire that reward. And that becomes the thing that occupies much more of their attention. So you are the 14th Women's Scholar. We've had 500 or more other speakers. So we've learned over 14 years that many Jewish traditions come from other traditions. So does the idea of the Messiah come from ancient traditions, other traditions? Do you, is there a Messiah in Egyptian theology? Is this a unique Judeo-Christian, I don't know about Islam, view of the world? I mean, the word of an anointed one, um, and the idea that that's a, a king or a leader who is anointed, we certainly find um, not just in ancient Israelite uh, society, in Canaanite societies and others, they have these anointed kings or leaders. But by the time we get to rabbinic notions of messianism, they're articulated in very sort of uniquely rabbinic ways. And, and something that we find even in post-rabbinic Judaism is that these messianic movements do tend to retain their kind of pronounced Jewish character and that they're really preoccupied with questions of Jewish redemption and expressing them in terms that are fairly unique to the rabbinic tradition. So other traditions do have notions of redemption, um, but you'll find, for instance, in some forms of Christianity and of Islam, 
their notion of reward and punishment happens much more in the afterlife, whereas this is a little bit different than that. Yes? Do you see the interaction, in other words, our, in, the, our actions on Earth inter, can in, influence heaven? Is that more a typical Jewish perspective as opposed to other religions? Um, so the question is, the notion that human actions have an influence on the divine realm, is that more distinctly Jewish than in other traditions? As opposed to specifically Christianity. Um, I think it found a more legitimate home within Judaism than in other traditions. So we find in ancient Hermeticism, there's this notion as above, so below. Um, and that idea becomes incorporated into the mystical strands of Judaism almost verbatim. Um, and the idea that the upper and lower worlds mirror one another, and that things done in the lower world can therefore manipulate things happening in the upper world. That idea has, there's a lot more suspicion about it in some normative forms of Christianity and Islam, whereas in, uh, we find elements of theurgy, that's what that notion is called, human actions that influence the divine realm. Scholars often refer to that as theurgy. And we find elements of theurgy in rabbinic Judaism to some extent, but as we look into post-rabbinic, medieval, especially Kabbalah, there it's central to their whole view of Judaism. And remarkably, it's, it's embraced as um, not only an acceptable doctrine, but as an idea of what was the true inner essence of Judaism since the revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I think the reason why it was able to find such a comfortable home in rabbinic Judaism is because of rabbinic Judaism's focus on behaviors done with the body, halachic practices, rather than just beliefs or ideas. The notion that human behaviors are so powerful that they influence the divine realm, which in turn influences the cosmos, that idea works very well in rabbinic Judaism because it gives it a whole new level of power and meaning. Sure, in the back. Uh, follow up on Ari's question. Do we find any discussion in Judaism about an afterlife prior to the Jews living in the land of Egypt, where it was widely accepted from? So the, the question is, we find um, notions of an afterlife. And here, you, you, you're, I guess you'd be curious, in the Torah itself, where it's more proximate to the time spent in Egypt? Well. The, the Bible seems not to be very interested in the notion of an afterlife. And the Talmud is only sort of interested. And even in the places where they are interested, um, they describe the afterlife as essentially a big yeshiva. <laughs> Meaning that what they're really interested in is the notion of a normative, rabbinic, and halakhic community being reflected on the divine realm. Whereas it's true, there are other ancient traditions that were very interested in the afterlife. And we find that Biblical Israelite religion, really not very much. And rabbinic Judaism, also less so. Even questions of, of, of messianism, as we saw, are somewhat secondary to questions of a stable, halachic, kind of normative rabbinic society. Um, and I, these, I think, are some of the reasons why those ideas that we find really carefully worked out in some religious traditions um, are left 
really almost not discussed in, in some parts of biblical and especially rabbinic Judaism. Last question. Yes. Does Jewish messianism predate Jesus? Um, yes, I mean, there's Israelite texts that talk about um, the, the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah and other prophets, they, they talk about a redeemer who's coming, and this is part of what as enables... A, as a rabbinic Jesus. discussion, as something that people were interested in for their lives rather than an ancient text. So let me just be sure I, I um, understand your question. Does it seem like post-biblical Jewish communities, but before Jesus, so I guess like the second temple period, do they have an emphasis on messianic redemption? Yeah, do we have, do we have an independent line of thought in, in, uh, in Jewish life of, of messianism that doesn't include um, developments that came up after Jesus? There is a lot of discussion of Messianism in the Second Temple texts, um, so in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, and in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those tend to be very apocalyptic. And what was pointed out, so, so Lawrence Shipman has actually read, written uh, from NYU a, a lot about this. Um, the Second Temple period, Israelite, Jewish, Judean community was really interested in apocalyptic ideas of, of catastrophic change with the coming of the Messiah. After the time of Jesus, what we find in rabbinic literature, especially in the earlier parts of rabbinic literature that are closer to Jesus and Bar Kokhba, a, a real muting of those tendencies that are apocalyptic messianism. And there the focus is much more on this worldly experience and a, and a much calmer vision of messianic uh, redemption in those texts, and, and that seems to be influenced by um, both the, the, the revolt around the time of Jesus and the revolt around Bar Kokhba. But there are a lot of texts before that in the Second Temple period where they were very interested in, in messianic redemption, and, and they were very apocalyptic in their articulations of it. We'll, we'll take several questions. Sure. Um, it, it might have something to do with Ari's question. But a lot of times you see the other peoples in the world, their thoughts kind of dripping into Judaism. And then we do things to either counteract them or to absorb them. So during this period, after the biblical period, but before Jesus, were there other peoples all over the world that had messiahs uh, in their traditions that we had to somehow incorporate? I don't think there were things that were entirely similar to the messiah that is described in the Hebrew Bible or the Second Temple period literature. But that doesn't mean that um, what you're asking wasn't there. It's definitely the case that Judeans at that time um, were engaged with the people around them in terms of thinking about what's going to happen to them in terms of their independence. They were very concerned about how to come out from under the rule of Rome. Um, they wanted to establish a truly independent Israelite or Judean kingdom. And in trying to do that, they were asserting a Judean identity against the kinds of things that were being 
um, placed upon them by the powers around them. So it was, it was definitely a rejection of how others saw their place in the world. It wasn't quite the same as having a messiah idea that they were resisting. Okay, but what I, I guess what I'm thinking of is I know that the, during the temple period, Jews were trading all over Asia, and you've got the, the Buddhists and the, all those Eastern religions, and they all have afterlifes and, and whole other realms going on, and our traders are going back and forth. And could they have brought things back with them that the rabbis had to repel or absorb because they were very powerful ideas? So the question of the, the relationship of rabbinic literature to Eastern thought through the connections of trade routes, is a, that's a great question. And I just wish we had better evidence for telling us about the degree to which they had to respond to these ideas or not. Um, from what we know now, though, of these kinds of Eastern traditions, they're, they're presented differently. So I don't, on the surface of it, really see a close connection. Um, but it doesn't mean that that wasn't possible in the ancient world. We just, we don't have, unfortunately, enough, uh, enough evidence to tell us precisely. Okay. So with that, I hope you will come back next Monday for part two. Uh, of our series. The subtitle of part two is Shabtai Tzvi, The Mystical Messiah, Why They Loved Him Before They Hated Him. <laughs> you know, at our synagogue at CBI, we had like, Marcia Tilton, our Kander's married to Scott Spitzer. So what's interesting, I don't know if you have met him yet, right? So Scott Spitzer's Hebrew name is, does anybody know? Shabtai. And guess when he was born? On Tisha B'Av. So if you join us at CBI, we often, when we sing about Mashiach and the beer cup, we point to Scott. He denies it, we'll tell him that. The true Messiah will always deny it. So if you would like to see someone who could be the Messiah, come to CBI for our series at the end of the month. Um, also, I did. I had a chance, we had Joseph Solishkin in town a few months ago, and I read his book about the Rebbe. It is a whole chapter about the Messiah. One thing I will say is I grew up in an Orthodox environment. I went to Imanis. We never spoke about the Messiah. No one I know speaks about the Messiah. Most mainstream Jews don't spend their time worrying about the Messiah. Um, but I would say more the Hasidic movements seem to spend time on that. Uh, so it's just interesting. We have, that, we have that tension, like you mentioned with the rabbis, which is maybe we all hope for a good future. We just don't want to move right now from here to the Middle East. <laughs> anyway, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.